If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are actively importing poverty, terrorism, and the world's problems through our southern border, and I'm not sure what for. It's not as if we are in short supply of people who hate this country already in this country. The show starts now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Before we get into the college green hairs, the queers for Palestine and the straight up terror sympathizers who are infesting our streets and college campuses, I want to first take a moment to acknowledge two of the most creative and ironic Halloween tributes from yesterday. First up, the son of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who dressed up as Ukrainian president and pain in the ass, Zelensky. Now, the costume didn't take much effort, just a green tracksuit. The same amount of effort Zelensky himself puts into his appearances when shaking us down for billions. But what a great Halloween costume, truly. You know, I can't think of a better outfit to wear when asking Joe Biden for things, billions of dollars, weapons, or candy, than a Zelensky costume, so bravo. And speaking of Secretary of State, the former one who just will not go away no matter how many times she's asked to, Hillary Clinton, also posted an incredibly accurate Halloween tribute. Hillary as a witch. Finally, some self-awareness from old HRC. But that's where Democrat self-awareness ends. So back to reality that is far scarier than Halloween. The humanitarian aid we've sent to terrorists. Yeah, apparently there is no indication it's been used for terrorism. We, I want to be very clear on this. We have seen no indication, none, that Hamas has gotten their hands on any of the humanitarian assistance that has gone in. None of it. Comforting. Let's ask another Biden administration head to clarify. I think the question I'd like to ask is, has, can you guarantee us that, that no taxpayer money, no U.S. taxpayer money, went to fund the attack that Hamas delivered in Israel on October the 7th? So we have, and we've had uh, from day one, uh, and we'll get, obviously get back to you in, the, in, in response to this letter, a robust monitoring, inspection, uh, verification system for the assistance that goes uh, to uh, any international organization. Uh, no, and including Can you guarantee, Hamas. though, that U.S. taxpayer dollars didn't go to Hamas to help fund this attack on October the 7th? So everything uh, that we're doing in terms of uh, making sure that the assistance is used for purposes for which it's uh, designated not for other purposes. As I said, we have a robust system in place. A robust monitoring system, huh? Is that the same robust system the Biden administration uses at our southern border? Because if so, we should all just cut a check to Hamas right now and get it over with. Joining me now with her take and her expert analysis is editor-in-chief of the Foreign Desk, Lisa Dafferty. 
Lisa, it's great to have you. I've been excited to talk to you about all of this. So I want to start right where I left off there, talking about the money that is going to humanitarian aid in Gaza, in Palestine. How confident are you in our robust monitoring system that uh, Hamas has not gotten their hands on any of this money that we've worked tirelessly to earn? It's impossible, right? So when you give anything, whether it's money, a bottle of water, gasoline to Gaza, you are in effect giving it to Hamas. Hamas is the governing body of Gaza. So whenever we get a death toll number, whenever we get any reports out of the Gaza um, uh, health ministry or, or whatever a body that they're sending it from, we're getting it from Hamas. And I think that's something that that reporters, when you're watching these press briefings and you're watching them, you're like, is this the Hamas press corps? Because the questions are extremely uh, one-sided, not realizing that we're talking about a terror organization. We're not talking about innocent Palestinians. And if you do want to talk about innocent Palestinians, yes, they are victims, but they're victims of Hamas. They're victims of their own kind. As to the Biden administration, there are many ways in which taxpayer money did go into this attack, and I will tell you why. A, we empowered Iran's regime. We gave them, whether you want to talk about the $6 billion, and people say, well, the $6 billion didn't get to them yet, and that I'm talking about the $6 billion that was given on top of a already lopsided uh, prisoner exchange. Uh, we've given them many more billions of dollars, whether it was under President Obama or under President Biden, removing vital sanctions that allowed Iran's regime to go out there and make 60 to $90 billion on their own in oil sales. We helped them with their revenue. And we know that the Iran regime funded this attack. We also know that it wasn't just Hamas. It was other factions uh, inside the Palestinian territories as well, including Palestinian Islamic Jihad, perhaps the PA. We give, the American taxpayer, gives money to the Palestinians. President Trump discontinued that aid because he said, look, we know that money is going to terrorists. And why do we know that? Because they have a pay to slay program. What does that mean? People who die in line with their duty of killing Jews get monthly stipends, their families get monthly stipends for the rest of their lives. U.S. taxpayer money was going to pay for that program. So Donald Trump came along and said, nope, we're going to cut that program. Within the first weeks of Biden's presidency, he said he will reinstate that aid. And guess what? No preconditions. There wasn't even a memo on the check that said, please don't kill Jews with this money. U.S. taxpayer money that was going towards uh, terrorism, of course, and not for the people of Gaza. If you've ever been to the region, which I have been many times, maybe 20 times, and I've been to Gaza, I've been to the West Bank, Gaza can become the Saint-Tropez of the Middle East. They can make so much money on their own in terms of tourism and, 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 and just be prosperous, but they don't because their leadership uses every single penny they have for terrorism, as was demonstrated by the attack on October 7th. So Lisa, as somebody that's familiar with the region and has been to the region, this is the question that I have and a lot of people who support Israel and are watching this unfold have. So I want you to be very honest with me. The average Palestinian, there's a lot of discussion about Palestinians, mm -hmm. of course, right now, a lot of people that have no knowledge, as you do, of that part of the world. The average Palestinian civilian that's not a member of Hamas, not in Hamas leadership, is not going and actually carrying out attacks. If you talk to the average Palestinian on the streets pre-October 7th, were those people friendly towards Israel, indifferent towards Israel, indifferent towards Jews, or are they born and bred with an innate hatred for Jews and really Americans? What are these people like 
And of course, we can't, we can't classify everybody in a monolith, but by and large, what's the situation? Yeah, it's a great, great question because we can talk about before October 7th and after October 7th, right? So behind closed doors, I mean, when the media is not looking, when the New York Times and the BBC and the AP aren't making headlines, the Palestinian people, many of them were actually protesting against Hamas before October 7th. Where are those protesters now? I mean, that's really the difference between, let's say, the Iranians that came out onto the streets for a whole year about the Masa Amini protests. That was the difference between them. They have differentiated themselves from their government. Regardless of what their government does, the Iranian people, for the most part, will say, "We're that doesn't define us. That's not who we are. We hate them more than you do. The Palestinian people, they fall into many different categories. Some of them are still mad at Hamas, but behind closed doors. They would never air their dirty laundry because their unity or their hatred towards Israel and the Jews is much more than their hatred towards Hamas. The second category of, of, of Palestinians are just born into it. I mean, and from a young age, this is what they're, this is their indoctrination, right? So the math books from a young age say, if I kill two Jews today, two Jews tomorrow, how many Jews have I killed in total? They see the weapons being hidden in their schools. Uh, this is, this is the culture that they're, they're raised with. The songs talking about, if I become a martyr and I kill Jews, I will go to heaven. Uh, this is, this is in their DNA. So th those, and that's a, 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 I would say a good portion of, of Palestinians as well. And there are others who are very afraid of speaking out, but that they understand. They're the ones who would rather live under uh, Israel because the Arabs who live under Israel are much more prosperous. They have jobs. They have regular lives. They're not indoctrinated. They're not living under terror. Uh, and they're given they're given rights in Israel. Uh, and there are those who are living under in the Palestinian territories that want to speak out, but they're very fearful. Look, you think Hamas is going to give them an easy time if they're speaking out against Hamas? No, they'll kill them. They have no they have no qualms with that. Uh, and that's why we don't see as many courageous uh, Palestinians coming to speak out, even the very few who, who would like to. Yeah, I had a feeling that that was probably going to be the answer here. So it puts Israel in a really tough spot. I mean, every day, if you look at social media, which has become really a black hole vacuum in the last several yeah. weeks, but a lot of people calling for ceasefire, saying Israel needs to stop the, the civilians. There's just been a dust up again last night and today about, well, Israel is targeting refugee camps and settlements. And it's very hard to separate fact from fiction. Right. But then we see directly coming from Hamas them saying, you know, we will do whatever we have to do. We will erase Israel. So it's hard when you have these competing narratives for the average person who doesn't have a foreign policy background to decide which side they're on, if we can even right. say they're sides. So help them understand the situation. Okay, the fact that Hamas carried out an attack of, I mean, it was ISIS exponential to, to a different degree. I mean, it, the, the fact that we have to talk about taking sides when there was such a barbaric attack on innocent civilians, young children, women being raped on the streets and being dragged through uh, Gaza where people are handing out sweets. The fact that people think they have to take sides is, is crazy to me. That's first and foremost. Tommy, the issue here is that facts do not define the narrative in this situation. If they did, there wouldn't be sides. People would understand that, that Hamas is the issue, Iran's regime pulling the puppet strings and funding so many different terror proxies right now, trying to get the United States into a war. Uh, that is the problem, and that is the root of the problem. Social media tells a different story. College campuses tell a different story. Is it truly about land or policies or how the Palestinians are being treated when Jews are being beaten up on the streets of New York or L.A.? 
It's not. It's absolutely not. Those kids on college campuses that are protesting, could they even place Gaza or Israel or Yemen or Iraq on a map? Absolutely not. Could they define the Palestinian problem in two sentences if their lives depended on it? No. 99% of them cannot. So what it comes down to is Jew hatred, anti-Semitism. This has become a justifiable bigotry. I mean, what other group would this be accepted for? I mean, would we be able to do this against any other minority group? Jews make up 2% of the United States' population, but they make up over 60% of hate crimes in the United States. And this is before October 7th. After October 7th, that number has has, has gone up 400% in terms of the, the, the incidences of, of, of anti-Semitism. Those kids on college campuses, what do they know about this situation? What do they know about the nuances of this situation? It's it's twofold, right? It's all it's a lot of these families that have uh, brainwashed their children to believe that Jews are bad, uh, that Israel must be erased. And it's also the woke, the social justice gurus who believe that if you're gay, you have to hate Jews. If you are queer, you have to hate Jews. If you are trans, you have to hate Jews. If you are for women's rights, you have to hate Jews. It just goes down the checklist. And it's absolutely the opposite. If you go to Israel, it's the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the only place where women uh, outnumber men in places of work, in universities, in tech. You know, they have a gay pride parade. Try getting any of those rights among Palestinians in, in any other Arab nations. Uh, and speaking of Arab nations, where are they? Why aren't people calling out the, 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 the right. really the elephants in the room? There's so many elephants in the room. But the main one being there, there are 21 Arab states. I mean, we're, they're surrounded by how many? And they're not even, they're not doing anything. Jordan, nothing. Egypt, nothing. Why don't they help them? All they can do is sit there and point fingers at Israel. Why is this Israel's problem? Why should Israel care more about the fate of Palestinian people than the Palestinians do, than the Jordanians do, than the Egyptians do, than Hamas does, than the Palestinian uh, authorities under Mahmoud Abbas does? And these are all the, the basic, basic questions that nobody's asking. It's only about one thing, and that's anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. And we must, as Americans, call it out. Because as you know, Tommy, first they come for the Jews and then for everybody else. I'm glad that you brought up <clears throat> these other Muslim nations not stepping in to help these uh, so-called refugees. That's a question that I've been begging on uh, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, for several days now. It feels like Egypt, Jordan, these other Muslim nations, it feels like they, knew, they know something that we don't. That they don't want to bring these people into their country, resettle them in their country, which you know, is, is a border country, which would be much easier to absorb them into an already Muslim nation right next door, right? But they don't want them, and they've made it very clear that not only do they not want them, they will not accept them under any circumstances. So and is there something that we're missing? Why do these nations not want to... It almost seems like, to me, like New Yorkers not wanting to bring in people from New Jersey, unless there's something about people from New Jersey that we're not familiar with. Can you please exactly. help us break it down? Exactly right. And this has been for years. And look, you know, on our end, the myth has always been there will never be peace in the Middle East unless there's peace among Israelis and Palestinians. And the, the Abraham Accords under Donald Trump really blew that myth away and said, you know what, we can sidestep this issue. And there are many moderate 
Arab nations that don't really hate Israel. They've been told to hate Israel because the Palestinians are Muslim and they're their brothers and they're supposed to, but they're losing out, right? They're losing out on tourism. They're losing out on um, technology that they can get from Israel. They're losing out on trade deals that they can, private and public trade deals that they can get with Israel. And the Abraham Accords have been tremendously successful. You look at the EUAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, all of them signing on to the Abraham Accords and Saudi Arabia wanting to sign on to the Abraham Accords. So the issue isn't really Israel. The issue is keeping this narrative in place. Nobody wants to deal with the Palestinian issue. They want to place it on Israel. Now, the Jordanians are literally blood with the Palestinians. That They're literally the same people. And Queen Rania comes with her head-to-toe designer look on CNN, and she starts cry- crying her crocodile tears about the Palestinians. But Christiana Mampour, who is a faux journalist, didn't turn around and say to her, but what have you done? What did your country do for the Palestinians? It's very easy to blame the Jews, but why is it a Jewish problem when the Jews have offered a two-state solution multiple times over the last 75 years and even prior to that? Tommy, there were deals that would have given the Palestinians a bigger country than Israel, but they didn't want it. You know why? Because for them, Israel existing, even next to them, even in a smaller state next to them, was a non-starter. And so this hatred has caused them this life, this fate over and over again. People talk about Gaza being an open air prison. People talk about Gaza being free the Palestinians. Hello, the Palestinians are free. They are free. They have gotten, they received Gaza. The the, uh, Israelis evacuated the last family from Gaza in 2005 and handed over to uh, the Palestinians and said, okay, this is yours, all you. What do they do with it? Even the pipes that Israel gave them for clean water, they used for bomb making. Every every single turn, every single penny they got, and they they voted in uh, Hamas in 2007. And if people say, oh, they didn't vote them in, Hamas pushed their way in, okay, get onto the streets and protest. Don't defend them. Don't defend them over there in Gaza. Don't defend them in the West Bank. And don't defend them on college campuses or in protests in London and Rome and New York and L.A. Stop defending Hamas. If the problem is Hamas, why don't we call it out as uh, globally? Why doesn't everyone stop and say it's Hamas? Just the way we would if, let's say, Hamas had attacked Belgium. Everyone would be like, oh, my God, the poor Belgians. But all of a sudden, we're defending Hamas and blaming the Jews. Why? Because it's just pretext to blame the Jews. What's interesting to me is that there's another situation going on with Russia and Ukraine And I don't hear anybody on the left taking the side of Russia, um, but they're quick to take the side of Hamas. Very interesting here. Russia invades Ukraine. We support Ukraine. Hamas attacks Israel. We support Hamas. So interesting here. The brainwashing, the propaganda is certainly much more streamlined coming from that side. It's a well-oiled machine. Lisa, we're going to keep discussing this. We appreciate your insight for somebody that's been there, somebody who's seen it, somebody who has the knowledge that can correct a lot of the social media narratives. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. And I hope to have you back soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for all your work. I appreciate you so much. All right. When you fight for the truth, when you're willing to say the emperor has no clothes or these cloth masks don't work, you risk more than social media censorship and backlash. You risk everything you've worked for. But some with real guts, real grit, and true intestinal fortitude are willing to do it anyway. That's the case with my next guest, who, despite being a board-certified internist for over 30 years, has been fighting to keep her medical certification after claims she spread 
misinformation about masks, the clot shot, and the effectiveness of ivermectin. She originally appealed the American Board of Internal Medicine's decision, but had to present binders worth of research and provide hours worth of testimony to back up her claims. Internal medicine physician Dr. Denise Seibley joins me now with the full picture. Doctor, it is so great to have you with me. You know, I first became familiar with everything that you've been going through through my friends at Tennessee Stands advocating for you and your fight. You know, I explained in my open here that you really have been fighting to keep your medical certification. You've been deemed somebody that's spreading misinformation, even though you've been in this industry for 30 plus years, well qualified to do the, the research and well qualified to make the assessments you've made. So please take my audience into what's going on and why you're in this position having to fight tooth and nail for truth and reality in science, which some claim to be all about. Yes, I'm Dr. Denise Sibley from Johnson City, Tennessee. I'm a small town uh, internist, board certified for 34 years. And um, I got um, news from the American Board of Internal Medicine in May of 2022 that I was spreading misinformation and uh, that they deemed it threatening enough that uh, they could remove my board certification. And uh, spreaders of misinformation they felt were harmful to the public and uh, did not agree with accepted medical consensus. So that was my, my offense, my sin. Uh, what I've been doing since March of 2020 um, actually, God put it in my lap to start treating uh, COVID patients. I've treated thousands. Um, and I looked at the data myself, as any doctor would. Uh, this is not my first rodeo. I've been through quite a few novel illnesses um, in my career. And you look at the data and you assess it yourself and you uh, give patients informed consent about what the treatment options are, what the risk and benefits are. And that's what I proceeded to do. I also got involved in the legislative process here in Tennessee uh, to help guard some of our safeguards for our citizens. And um, that seemed to be, to me, the trigger that triggered the American Board of Internal Medicine's attention because I have no social media. I'm not a national figure. Um, they referenced my dinky little website according to my statements there as misinformation. And so they have proceeded in the last year and a half to attack me. And um, I've had to make a written appeal, then legal appeal. And finally, on a Friday the 27th, I appeared there in person uh, before a panel with my attorney uh, to make my last appeal to keep my board certification, which I've had since 1989, so 34 years, and I have a perfect record. Um, I took the test uh, that certifies you in internal medicine after I completed an internal medicine residency, and that internal medicine means taking care of adults, and um, I've been in good standing since then. I adhere to the charter, of phys the physician charter, which means you'll, you'll be altruistic, You'll not have any financial conflicts of interest when taking care of patients. Um, in fact, I did not take any remuneration, any uh, payment for any services I've rendered to COVID patients wow. since March of 2020. So, so no one, and, and that was on purpose. 
And mm -hmm. I, I want to get into this as well because, you know, there's been the word misinformation. Boy, if we could put that down on a bingo card somewhere, it's been used heavily in the last several years. It's been applied to a lot of people. It's been applied to me in many circumstances simply for oh. saying that I won't get the clot shot. Um, apparently, that's misinformation, according to <laughs> Facebook and the Biden White House. So, you know, not to the extent that you have, but I know what it feels like to be labeled something that right. I clearly am not for standing up for truth and reality, even my own personal truth, which they can't dispute. But what are some of the things that you were saying or putting on your very small website or saying to patients that the board and others seem to have such an issue with? What was it that bothered them so much about your treatment mm -hmm. and your advocacy? Well, there were several things they alluded to initially, but what it boiled down to that they were threatening to remove, well, and they recommended that my certification be revoked, and that's why I went to Bill, was uh, I said that masks were ineffective um, and that they had been shown even prior to COVID to not help with respiratory illnesses. And uh, the other sin was that I said that the uh, shots were experimental and that they were not safe and effective. And I proceeded to give my reasons why that was. So my misinformation involved masks and vac and the, the vaccines, which are really genetic therapy shots. And I based that on literature and uh, what I, I know to be true from reading thousands and thousands and thousands of articles and peer-reviewed studies and uh, really searching the literature. And misinformation right now means anything that doesn't agree with the government narrative. And in particular, the American Board of Internal Medicine has colluded with the government and other federal agencies uh, to shut down dissenting voices. And um, in, in investigating this, they actually have the say same public relations firm. So they all employ the same public relations firm called Weber Standwick. And ABIM employs them, the CDC employs them, Pfizer and Moderna employ, employs the same PR firm to counter misinformation. <laughs> so to me, that's a financial conflict of interest and it yeah, no shows kidding. collusion. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, it certainly does. Big government plus big tech plus big pharma lying mm -hmm. to us for many years now. And unfortunately, in a lot of places, we can't even have this very honest discussion because we'll be censored there too. So you can't even talk about things on these so-called social media platforms aside from Twitter slash X. Otherwise, you'll be pulled off there, which we have personal experience with. But I want to ask you about some of the research that you've done. Masks aside, I mean, anybody who still advocates for masks to me is an idiot and a moron. But aside from those people, we'll just leave them alone. They can wear their masks alone in the shower. I don't care. I want to talk about the vaccine. Because, you know, you said that there are other treatments besides the vaccine that you consider to be more safe and more effective one of those being ivermectin. You know, to my knowledge, ivermectin has been used for quite some time now, but it wasn't until people like Joe Rogan and many medical professionals started talking about ivermectin for COVID that ivermectin became this dirty word. It became a horse tranquilizer and it was, you know, made a mockery of. So let's talk about ivermectin and some of the things that you've gone through to fight for what was actually is an effective treatment. 
Correct. So ivermectin is an old drug. It was actually, these are, it's an FDA approved drug, 1987, prior to COVID, 4 billion doses had been given with an excellent safety profile. It's actually a natural substance, much like aspirin or penicillin. It was found in the soil of a saprophytic organism in a Japanese golf course, the only golf course or the only soil that's ever been found. And from that, uh, that was avermectin. Ivermectin was manufactured and we've used it for um, lots of parasitic diseases. I've used it. I had experience using it. It wasn't a new drug for me to use. And likewise, hydroxychloroquine is actually older than I am. I'm 63 um, and it is older than I am. I've prescribed it to hundreds of patients in my career. Um, it's used for um, connective tissue disease like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, uh, Sjogren's syndrome. And then everyone that went on a mission trip got it for malaria. Um, I've used it hundreds and thousands of times. And that's really um, what um, sort of showed me that things were amiss initially is that my prescription for hydroxychloroquine for 10 tablets called into two pharmacies in March of 2020, they refused to fill. And mm -hmm. I, I write for 180 at a time for most folks who are on this chronically. But getting to ivermectin, it's a very safe drug. There are 99 studies um, that that overall show a benefit of ivermectin and a, an unrivaled safety profile. And I, to me, I've seen it firsthand when you use it uh, initially in a COVID illness. The first five days are optimal with uh, a sequential therapy with other things, nutraceuticals, vitamins. You use it in combination. And it's had an excellent response. I, I found it to just be invaluable in treating folks. So I, I got experience myself using these for a novel disease, repurposed drugs. These right. are all FDA approved drugs. No, and absolutely. So, so what yeah. do you think during the COVID time made those two things dirty? Was it that they weren't expensive enough? that they weren't, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson made to treat COVID? Uh, is, is that what you think, if you were to surmise, that maybe that's why that it was dirty to talk about those as treatments um, ahead of or in addition to or in place of the COVID vaccine? Certainly they were less expensive and they were off patent, so there wasn't a lot of money to be made. Hmm. But the big thing... Uh, and which was one of my initial sins, which they finally kind of dropped. But um, when you issue an emergency use authorization for a product, uh, the federal code requires that there be no alternative form of treatment for said illness. So in order to issue the EUA for the shots, which were, vac which were genetic therapy, they had to say that no effective treatment alternatives existed. Mm. So they could not say that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were valuable uh, ways of treating uh, this disease. Otherwise, they couldn't have gotten an EUA. They would have had to go through the you know, multi-year process of uh, getting these therapies um, authorized the usual way. 
So I want to break that down for my audience because I think it's so important what you just said there. So I've called it the experimental Mm -hmm. vaccine, too, because it is an experimental vaccine. Mm -hmm. So in order for them to get this emergency use authorization, there had to be no other treatments. So they had to discredit the other two because otherwise they couldn't ramrod this through and get a vaccine and make billions and billions of dollars on it. I mean, you don't have to say it, but I will. I mean, I, I think any logical human being can connect those dots. So they don't want you out there speaking about other methods or other mm-hmm. treatments that are off patent and cheap because then it would disrupt the vaccine, which they wanted to give to millions and millions of Americans and billions of people worldwide. Wow. This all sounds a little criminal to me, doctor. Right. Exactly. And the, the collusion and the deceit And now, um, you know, one of the things that's really hit the news in my circles and um, is coming to light is that these shots were adulterated. That is, they were contaminated. They were contaminated and it was not made um, apparent. It was not, of course, no one had informed consent, but it was not made apparent to the FDA. Um, But these were adulterated and they they used a process that was different in the clinical trial to produce these shots than what was used to mass roll out these products to the uh, mass global uh, population. Mm-hmm. And in that, in that two process shift or what we call the Pfizer bait and switch, um, there was contamination with DNA, with a, a cancer promoter, gene sequences of SV40, which is simian virus 40, with bacterial endotoxins, which came from the sort of bacterial colony uh, way of forming these mass vaccinations. So there were contaminants in the product that were never discussed, proposed, and no study was actually done on the method that was used to give this this shot to everyone so it was it was they they did one you know sort of purified way with the study and then they said oh we need to really ramp it up and give a million billions of doses so let's use this faster and uh and less expensive way to mm-hmm. make the shot and in that came a lot of unintended and unknown um contaminants so yeah, to me, it, no kidding. It, it's good. Good manufacturing processes were not followed, and there's deceit. And doctor, I want to you know help my non-medical audience kind of understand, give them an analogy for what you just said there. It's like taking a designer item and showing people a designer item in the store, and then what you're actually going to get is the wish or the she inversion of that. And you wonder why it's crappy and made poorly and rushed through in mass manufacturing. And it's not the designer item that you were originally sold. So that's mm-hmm. where millions of Americans were that either got the vaccine because they thought it was the cure-all, save-all, be-all gospel or people that were coerced into getting it. I wish I had all day with you because I'm so intrigued by this. But I do want to ask you in, in closing, when you're looking at everything going on now, you know, it, it frustrates me when every time somebody in the news has a heart attack, people say it's vaccine related. I don't think that's true. However, 
What can you tell from everything going on now? People that got the vaccine maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, maybe didn't get any boosters. Are they in the clear if they haven't experienced any side effects? Or could there be something coming down the line because of those shots that they're going to discover soon or in a year's time or in a couple of years time? Well, we know that you're not in the clear. Um, that, um, you know, one of the basketball players, uh, Caraba, uh, I can't remember his last name, and that was his middle name, but he had a heart attack during his season, and he said it was due to myocarditis on his uh, on his social media. Uh, he waited it out. He then went to have a, a, a treadmill to see if he could return to play. He actually died on the treadmill of a cardiac arrest, and they could not resuscitate him. This was two years out. So, obviously... Um, there are, and, and the cancer issues that we're seeing, the all-cause mortality, we don't even have to look at the scientific literature. You can look at the insurance industry, the actuarial industry. There are huge um, increases in all-cause mortality. What does that mean? That means that people died of whatever, you know, no cause attributed. That, that, that more people are dying just in general gives rise to concern. It's in every country, um, not just the United States. So something is amiss and we're, you know, almost here three years out um, and we're still seeing effects. And with this SV40, this cancer promoting gene in the product, it was a contaminant in past polio vaccines. They knew it caused cancer. Um, and it was included in here. So, and then we've got this DNA. So what does DNA in a product mean? Well, it means it's perfect to have the ability to incorporate into your DNA. Mm. And what does that do? Well, it's not a good thing. I can just <laughs> say, um, you don't want foreign DNA in your DNA. Uh, it corrupts it. Who knows what it causes? Um, but this is a huge, I, I wouldn't say you're in the clear, but then there's a Denmark study that say, said, you know, so far 30% of the batches had no effect or no side effects. 60% had moderate side effects and, and 10% had severe side effects. And of that, I think it was 4.3% had death and just severe life altering side effects. So even the batches differ. Right. Um, and a, a so, higher percentage of issues from the vaccine than from COVID itself. Uh, the last absolutely. thing I, I want to say is, you know, because I read your bio and I know that you feel like this mission that you have to tell the truth and be honest is one that was given to you by a greater power, one that you feel that this is your mission to tell the truth. Board certifications be damned. So in closing, can we just talk about your faith and how that has guided you on this quest, everyone be damned, to save people and tell the truth? Well, when when the first patients called me, I really didn't intend to be a COVID doctor, but I was going to help whoever called me. And I, I remember God saying, okay, you're going to start doing this and you're going to learn everything you can and you're not going to take any payment, which I know that was from God. But to me, telling the truth and helping the patient in front of you is who I am. That's my faith. I will always tell the truth. And actually, the attacks against me 
have emboldened me because I know I'm over the target. I know that I'm making a difference. And um, even though my General Assembly commended me for helping public health in Tennessee during the pandemic, obviously some people don't agree with that. But God agrees with what I'm doing. He wants me to help people. I'm emboldened to tell the truth, no matter what comes about. They, The ABIM has no control over me. I don't work for them. I work for God, the Lord God. And he's the one that tells me my duties and what I'm supposed to do. So I wake up every day and I say, yes, sir. You know, I'm reporting to duty. And um, so I, I've become stronger. Uh, with the attacks. And uh, I feel really emboldened to stand for the truth. And especially when so few doctors are standing up. Um, no, you're right about I look that for one. my tribe. <laughs> you're right about that one. I've had several of them on my show. They've gone through similar trials and tribulations that you have mm -hmm. by telling the truth. Dr. Marty McCary, Malone, mm -hmm. McCullough, so many mm -hmm. great ones out there like yourself. But we are so happy to have you here in Tennessee in the volunteer state, speaking the truth, standing firm in your conviction. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for maintaining the reality of the situation, even when it's not easy. God bless you. And thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Tommy. I appreciate it. Thank God you. Bless, doctor. All right, since October 7th, everyone and their mother has become a foreign policy expert. And while we are all entitled to our opinions, perhaps calling on celebrities to fix a religious war that's been raging for generations isn't the most realistic approach. It's time for Final Thoughts. It's a weird time to be alive, folks. We've got gays in the streets advocating for male tampons one day and for Palestine and Hamas the next. And while I'm sure a lot of these people are well-meaning morons, it doesn't fix the moron part of that equation. So here's an idea. All of these pro-Hamas, free Palestine folks should be sent over to Gaza to personally assist with the humanitarian effort. Don't forget your drag costumes, weirdos. I'm sure there'll be a big hit over there. But if we're being honest here, half the country honestly doesn't give two craps about what's going on in the Middle East unless Taylor Swift were to go there. And while that might seem like blissful ignorance in such a tumultuous time as this, perhaps it's for the best. Because what's worse? Celebrities commenting on the situation with little to no knowledge of the situation. And what's even worse than that? Fans of celebrities expecting said celebrities to be the answer and the cure. Earlier this week, Selena Gomez put out this post on her social media, doing what she, as a celebrity with no knowledge of the situation in Israel and Palestine, should do. Nothing. Do nothing. Say nothing. But that didn't satisfy her fans or the trolls who are quite upset that Selena Gomez, a pop singer and actress, isn't doing enough to support Palestinians. Excuse me, what in the actual hell is Selena freaking Gomez supposed to do about a war in Gaza? She has hundreds of millions of social media followers and that means it's her duty to take a side that's going to piss off hundreds of millions regardless and somehow that's going to do what? Who is Selena Gomez going to save? The best thing she could offer is a skincare routine and I have a feeling Hamas isn't interested. This right here is a symptom of a much broader disease, idol worship. Celebrities should not be expected to solve international conflicts because A, they can't, and B, they can't. So let's all just take a collective chill pill and leave these people alone. When celebrities try to stay in their lane, for the love of God, let them.
Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.